Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I apologize for the delays in putting up an episode for the week. It's been a little bit hectic, but I am glad to be back on and to have you on board. Um, I always try to start my podcast with a little anecdote, and I have one for you today. Uh, So a few days ago, I went into a pharmacy and... There were two attendants um, in the pharmacy. Both of them were on their phones uh, when I entered. And I thought, oh, you know what? They're going to notice that someone's come through the door. And I went and I stood at the till front between them. So one of them was to my left and the other was to my right. And, you know, they were still on their phones and they were looking down. And I just wanted to see how long it would take them to notice that someone had walked in to their shop Um, and I think it must have taken them over 10 seconds like I didn't count but you know it it got to a point where I started to feel awkward I didn't actually really mind I didn't make a big deal of it I didn't even mention it when one of them eventually looked up at me and and said oh you know how can I help you but it was just an interesting uh, moment for me Um, you know I think we all know that a lot of us are spending a lot of time on our phones and sometimes are not even conscious of what's going on around us. And so that for me was like, oh, wow, like neither of them even picked up that someone had walked in. Such an interesting time where we have these gadgets that give us access to other people's other people continuously and sometimes make us miss out on the now in the moment here and you know, now in the present time. So yeah, interesting times. But thank you again for joining us, for joining me um, for this episode, where I will try to unpack a little bit of ChatGPT. Now, ChatGPT has been on many people's lips uh, recently. People are trying to understand what exactly it is, what use it is to our lives, what threats it may pose to our lives, and the like. So I am going to try to give a very brief synopsis of my understanding of ChatGPT and some of the conversation points that are particularly of interest to people um, who are digital users and want to have a sense of what's to come. So there's distinctly, I think, two camps of thought around ChatGPT. Uh, Some see it as this disruptor of the interwebs. Um, I'm sure if you follow anyone who's uh, into social media analysis and the like, digital analysis, you may have seen people citing um, a figure or a statistic that says something to the like that, you know, it took Facebook this long to get to a million subscribers. It took Twitter this long to get to you know, a million subscribers. And, you know, it just took days for uh, ChatGPT to pass uh, um, 1 million users. And the, the, the platform did that in December 2022 in its public beta testing. And so, you know, unlike other 
disruptors of the internet, uh, which take sometimes weeks, months, years to get to a million. Here you have chat GPT that just takes days. And so this was seen by a lot of people as a marker of the relevance of this platform and how it's going to be a very disruptive space. Some see it as well as being poised to replace the Google search engine um, because of its ability to provide more tailored content or information around or what a person is looking to get answers to on the internet. So there's also that that's coming in as one of the big conversation points for people about what ChatGPT may represent. And then some people are not so convinced and see it as a glorified version of Wikipedia. Um, so they're just like, yeah, I mean, sure, it's just got a little bit more information and nuance than Wikipedia, but it's nothing particularly different. It's just um, built a little bit more sophistication to the answers that we're looking for. So, you know, who's to say who's in the right Who's in the wrong? Who's to say there's even a, even a right or a wrong? But those are some of the conversations that people are having around ChatGPT. Now, just to give a little bit of history about ChatGPT itself, um, as its name implies already, chat, um, it is a form of a chatbot. And we do all have, I think, experiences with chatbots. We might not realize that, but um, chatbots are a software that are designed with the sole purpose of engaging with users in human-like conversations. And they tend to be text-based. So for instance, when you are trying to get help for, um, when you have a problem with a, uh, a website or a service delivery of any sort, and if that company has a website um, and you go in and you go to the help section, a lot of times they ask you to type your question or your query or to give an idea of what the issue is. Um, and then you start this conversation and then, you know, it says, hello, I am whoever, it might have a name, it might not have a name. Um, but then you start having this conversation with um, usually a chatbot that is trying to figure out the nature of your request. Um, and then it may end in a transfer to an actual human being um, who you then engage with uh, to get a little bit more of the nuance about what the issue is. But a lot of times when we go onto these um, help desks online, we, we tend to start with a conversation with a chatbot. So the chat part of the name speaks to that part of um, the system. And then GPT, um, which is the, the last part of the name of ChatGPT, speaks to uh, what is in full the generative pre-trained transformers. Um, that sounds like a very, it sounds a little bit like an action movie, I know. <laughs> but um, I think if we break it down a little bit, generative in terms of it just generates data, it generates content, it's pre-trained and it's some kind of a machine. So it's, um, while it's a form of an, it's an artificial intelligence, but it's, it's pre-trained in that it has had access to a lot of information from the internet to learn things about issues and themes and different topics. And then it can generate responses for you uh, based on that pre-training it has received. So 
In essence, it's a chatbot that generates information from um, a kind of software or um, an artificial intelligence that has been pre-trained. It has basically learned as much as it can, and then it's giving you back what it has learned. Um, now, there's been, you know, different kinds of conversations. What exactly is a chatbot? What exactly is not a chatbot? I mean, I started thinking about this as well, and I was like, well, you know, is Siri a chatbot? Well, some people would say that um, Amazon's Alexa, Apple's Siri, Google Assistant, and Microsoft's Cortana are uh, chatbots, but some would actually make a distinction and say that those are virtual assistants. Now, I don't want to confuse this conversation too much, but some people think that virtual assistants are a little bit different in that they are user-oriented um, versus uh, what they think chatbots tend to be company-oriented um, or server-oriented, that they are working specifically to meet a uh, a company need or to fulfill a company task, whereas um, Siri, etc., are more user oriented. They are about what you need to get done. So you say, Hey Siri, um, I need you to uh, dim the lights or do something. Um, you know, whatever it is that you need. Well, I don't know if Siri dims lights, I know Alexa does. I, I don't use virtual assistants that way. So I don't actually know um, what commands people tend to give their virtual assistants. But then, you know, it's those kinds of things that people see chatbots as being um, not as sophisticated to do. So for some people who see chatbots in that way, I suppose chat GPT then is a disruption to their idea of what a chatbot is because in many ways, chatbot, uh, chat GPT is user oriented. It it uh, it responds to your needs or your questions, versus giving you kind of a preloaded idea of what is possible for a company to offer you in terms of its services. Um, and so one thing that um has been of very great interest is how ChatGPT has been able to pass these quite complex exams. Um, it recently cleared an MBA exam with the Wharton School of Business with a B grade. Um, and it has also recently just passed a US medical licensing exam. Um, it's also featured as a co-author of journal research journal articles, um, and it's apparently also authored a, no, a co-authored co a novella, which which is being sold on Amazon. So, it's able to do so much more um, sophisticated machine learning, and um, it is it is not as simplistic as our our precursors um, like our series and our Alexas, etc., which tend to work on command basis. They're more likely to respond to you if you have a command or an instruction, a very specific instruction that you want them to fulfill versus a more complex thing like writing and passing an exam or even writing poems limericks, riddles, and things that are a little bit more complex because they tend to be more subjective. Um, now, I think when people tend to hear 
the idea of AI or artificial intelligence, um, there is this kind of image that many people have. And I think it's, you know, if you're from a certain generation, I think Terminator, the movies, uh, tended to give us this idea of what AI or artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence would look like, you know, this half human, half machine cyborg that, you know, gets glitches in its system and starts to kill, you know, the, the bite the hand that fed it, etc., etc. And, you know, who's to say, I mean, that's a very fatalistic idea of artificial intelligence, but I do want to just bring it back to all of us that a lot of social media that we use currently is built on artificial intelligence. So I think there's this idea that people are tending to have because of chat GPT and its prominence at the moment and its heavy reliance on artificial intelligence that, oh, okay, oh my goodness, you know, the cyborgs have finally, finally arrived and we're in the age of artificial intelligence. But a lot of what we engage with already on the social media platforms that we use is built on artificial intelligence. I remember a, a while ago when I used to do trainings on social media, you, how to use social media platforms and how they're built, a lot of people would get very, very flustered when you told them about algorithms. Um, and algorithms are just this, you know, automated instructions that determine how the social media platforms uh, build communities or help you build your community. So I remember I'd be like, oh, you know, when you add someone new on your Facebook um, and you start seeing a lot of their feed on your profile or on your own feed, you start seeing a lot of their posts. That's just not that's not a random thing. It, it is something to do with the algorithm that has picked up um, a kind of affinity between yourself and this person and wants to push their content to you so that you engage more and, you know, you continue to build uh, your your friendship or your relationship online and all these different things that seem to be value free and happen randomly or without any kind of um, science or logic behind them are actually driven a lot of the times by algorithms. And so, you know, algorithms are a form of artificial intelligence. So, you know, depending on how long you've been using social media platforms, you've been already a part of the artificial intelligence um, system for a long time. And even beyond social media, there are many ways and different uh, capacities that artificial intelligence is employed. So I, I think, you know, when we think about ChatGPT and, you know, we may have these very fatalistic or particularly excitable um, ideas about artificial intelligence. I don't disregard either camp, but I do just want to uh, remind that, you know, artificial intelligence is not something new. And ChatGPT is also building on a lot of learning from, you know, its precursors, um, social media and all these other um, uh, platforms that have been using AI for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, just to get a little bit more into what ChatGPT's history and founding is, well, we know that um, it was launched by uh, OpenAI, the company that's been working on it in November 2022. And 
Uh, the language model behind ChatGPT was developed by OpenAI itself. And so how it really works is just, is just that it scrapes information from the open internet. And when we talk of scraping information or data, it's, it's literally like it's just going through all the information that it can find on the internet and assimilating it into its, its software, into its system to make sense of what, um, what it's learning. So it's, it's like when you're a child, you know, you are exposed to lots of different information about how to make sense of being a human being. Um, you know, as you grow up, you learn it's not deemed, um, suitable to, um, I don't know, you know, there's just certain norms and values that we all have and know, and we learn these by being exposed to other people who teach us the norms and values of society. And so in a certain way, that is how this system is learning. It's just reading through large amounts of text from the internet and basically learning things about history, about facts, about you know, different things to do with whatever the internet is offering. Um, and it, it's also important to note that it scrapes information from the open internet. Now, one thing that many people may not understand as well is that the internet is not all open. There are parts of the internet or, you know, some, some may call them the dark web, um, some parts of the internet are not open. They're not accessible. Um, they're, they're, um, they're, not, they're not then considered public, but they are parts of the internet. And so it's very important to make the distinction that when we talk about the internet, we're talking about the open internet um, and that there is another aspect of the internet that is not open, that is not publicly access accessible. Now, before we got to ChatGPT, as it is in this current um, stage of its, its, its processing and programming, we had a predecessor of ChatGPT, which was GPT-3. And this had already shown quite um, a, a remarkable ability to, for instance, put together sentences. Um, and, you know, it, it was showing a similar level of intelligence that ChatGPT is showing, but it was a very difficult um, sell because um, it was prone to uh, verbalizing, well, not verbalizing, but producing a lot of content um, that was, you know, full of hate speech, sexism, racism, violence, and the like. And um, that was because, again, if we are on the open internet, we are exposed to all kinds of information. There is um, useful information, but there is also information that is hateful. There is information that is misogynistic. There is information that is racist, etc. So in an open internet, um, if a software is learning the internet or is, is assimilating its knowledge base from the internet, it will assimilate from everything that is available. And so it will also be um, assimilating information that is negative. And so what we know is that um, OpenAI has then gone on to build an additional AI-powered safety mechanism that would help um, ChatGPT to be able to 
uh, rein in some of that harm or at least uh, not not be as insensitive to the kinds of hateful and negative content that exist on the open internet. And here I'll just take a quote from a Times article where um, it explains a little bit more what ChatGPT or OpenAI, the company, um, has done. Um, and says, the premise was simple, feed an AI with labeled examples of violence, hate speech, and sexual abuse, and that tool could learn to detect those forms of toxicity in the wild. That detector would be built into ChatGPT to check whether it was echoing the toxicity of its training data and filter it out before it ever reached the user. It could also help scrub toxic text from the training datasets of future AI models. So it's almost, again, it's a way of teaching this AI um, that these are things that we would mark as hateful or as abusive, etc., etc. Um, and it's kind of, again, to go back to the analogy of the child that we are teaching to be a human being, how we would, um, if a child pinches a, another child's ear, how you would reprimand the child and say, well, that's not... Um, that's not actually how we interact. We don't pinch each other. We don't hit each other. And so in a way, it's, it's, it's starting to teach the AI itself that these are not the ways that um, we would like people to speak to each other, et cetera, et cetera. It's marking this content as toxic. And the AI then somehow starts to read or pick up that that is not um, useful content. Um, and so I think, you know, with all these things, the sophistication, the levels of um, sophistication that um, ChatGPT has been able to um, develop, I mean, like we said, a, a chatbot at its most basic level is not going to be this sophisticated. And so this is, you know, this is a highly sophisticated uh, software and it's it's learning consistently how to be, I suppose, more um, more human-like. Uh, so it, it's, it's a bit of a threshold moment for a lot of people because, you know, it's not just uh, the more sophisticated tasks that you can perform on ChatGPT. You can, for instance, get ideas for projects, like a crafting project. You can ask it for its ideas and it will, you know, give you some examples. It, it, it passes these exams, but it's also able to give more simple or simplistic ideas about how to get something done um, then it also has you know some practical elements I mean crafting project is a very practical element too um, but you know things like debugging code uh, for coders you know if you get to a point where you are creating a code and you can't figure out where the glitch is you can ask ChatGPT, you know where am I making an error and you know it has enough machine learning and information to be able to um, potentially pick up um, errors in code. So it's very useful on um, esoteric and practical levels. Um, and also because it's been trained in dialogue, its responses tend to be more conversational. So it's not like you are talking to Siri, where Siri cannot really converse with you um, in a way that I guess sounds natural. Siri can only respond to tasks, whereas um, 
it seems like ChatGPT, one of the reasons why people like it so much is that it can respond, but it responds in a far more conversational way. It's almost like you are talking to someone and getting their opinion about something. Um, and because of this, I mean, there's already been a lot of investment into it, but then there looks like there's going to be more of it coming. Um, there's a talk of a $10 billion investment from Microsoft happening um, very soon. And also, you know, I think if you've tried to go and chat GPT at all, you might have noted that um, it's not always um, easy to get access. It, it tends to be at capacity quite a lot of the times. I mean, I've had moments where I've reached it at capacity and then I've gone back and I've been able to sign in and then it doesn't just, it just uh, something happens and then it's like, oh gosh. So it's really difficult to get access to chat GPT um, because everyone is trying to get onto it and trying to understand how it works and trying to figure out how to make it um, useful for themselves. And so I, I read yesterday that a new subscription plan is being put together, which is ChatGPT Plus, um, which will be available for $20 a month. And subscribers will receive a number of benefits, which will include uh, general access to ChatGPT, even during peak times, uh, priority access to new features and faster response times. So, you know, I think already we are starting to see the business model come into play with ChatGPT. Um, uh, and the subscription model is one of those things that they are already putting into putting into place. Um, I think ChatGPT Plus, as far as of now, is only going to be available to customers in the United States. But I assume if there is enough popularity for that, um, that will roll out more globally with time. Now, one thing that I have found really interesting that hasn't been discussed as much about ChatGPT is it's linked to Elon Musk. You know, I think um, many people that I've told this to have expressed some kind of surprise that Chat, that Elon Musk has anything to do with ChatGPT, but he does. Um, the owner of Twitter is the co-founder of OpenAI, the company that has developed ChatGPT. And um, he has obviously spoken very highly of it. I mean, he has, he's, he's got vested interests in it. And so he has spoken very highly of it recently. And um, what's quite interesting, I think, when we think as well about bots is um, just to take it a little step back. If you remember when Elon Musk was in the process of purchasing Twitter last year, one of the things that made him want to pull out of the deal was about bots, but in this case, it was spam bots, um, where he felt that there were too many um, accounts that were on Twitter that were spam bots that were not real people, and so there were very inflated numbers of the Twitter user base. And so, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about bots but a spam bot is a very different kind of bot in that it is a computer program that helps to spread spam on the internet. So he was fighting one bot, but championing a whole nother kind of bot. So it's not entirely the same kinds of bots. Um, but, you know, he's he's been speaking very highly about the use of ChatGPT on his Twitter profile. Um, and in, in December, actually, he tweeted that he'd learned that OpenAI was uh, accessing 
Twitter's database for training and that he'd put a pause on it. Now, that's a, another interesting conversation point to think through because, um, well, what is the open internet? Uh, it's it's always very complicated, especially when we are using social media platforms and we have these privacy um, protection guidelines, etc., that we sign on to and we say, you know, I agreed for my data to be used in this way or not to be used in this way. And so when we talk about open data and about open internet, is what we post on Twitter considered private data or open data? I mean, when we think about uh, locked accounts or locked tweets, etc., that obviously has a different layer of a privacy uh, and protection to it. But when we think about content that is freely accessible, if we go on a Google search and it, it you know it shows up as part of someone's Twitter content, you know, is that considered part of the open internet or is that a violation? Has Twitter violated me? by making that content part of the open internet. So, you know, as much as he says that, um, you know, he wasn't aware that OpenAI was accessing Twitter's database for training, um, I'm not sure that's entirely possible because, you know, I'm assuming that some of that information is what it's it's trained on from the open internet. But then the question comes about when he says, he's putting a pause on it. What does that mean? Does that just mean he's not letting the AI have access to um, DMs, direct messages or private chats, things like that? Or, you know, is, is the information that we tweet uh, very publicly still part of this open internet that this AI is learning from? Who knows? So those are some of the little nuggets or things that I've picked up from that seem to be um, interesting points to think through. Um, but then I think also just to run down through some of the pros and cons that, you know, are coming up around ChatGPT. Well, I think an obvious pro that um, everyone seems to agree with, I mean, the people who are in the positive camp for ChatGPT, is that it puts AI in the hands of the masses. Um, it's It's... I think the public beta testing has been a very interesting process. I think um, most communities who would have some kind of public-facing beta testing tend to be um, communities who are invested in free and open source software um, versus what OpenAI is, which is a very um, it's a company. It's it's you know it's you know it seems to have not for not for profit roots, but then. I mean, it's it's definitely looking like it's going to have very strong profit-oriented uh, motives, and so for it to have this public beta testing, which allows you know anyone around the world to really participate, um, is seen as putting AI in the hands of the masses. Not only is it that people are having access, but they are also in a way helping the company to figure out some of the sh uh, shortcomings of this beta product at this point in time and you know what a wealth of knowledge to have access to from over you know a million people in five days and going I don't know how many people chat GPT has reached as of now but then that's a lot of information and data and feedback to have so as some people see that as putting AI in in the hands of the masses and making people part of the process I think one of the more obvious pros is that it's it's a conversational um, software. It's 
Um, it mimics more of a human interaction than a lot of other AI. And for that reason, people feel more like they're having a conversation. They And, and they would trust probably more of the information that they get from ChatGPT than they might from you know, just having a Google search, etc. I think the other thing that's also becoming quite interesting is um, how ChatGPT can admit to mistakes. Um, so it has some level of sentiment um, and uh, ability to correct or self-correct, which is again a human feature. And most other AI does not have that at the moment. So again, it, it feeds into this almost humanizing experience that people would like to have, I think, with AI. Um, and it's accessibility. I think, you know, going again to this public beta testing, highly accessible to a lot of people. And so people feel like they're a part of the process of um, building this AI. And um, I think the other thing that goes back to its sentiment is its ability to challenge false assumptions or premises. Um, so unlike Google, it can correct you again. Um, it can also treat questions as hypothetical. And so it can, you know, imagine an answer to a question rather than just give a very fact-based answer. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it can write poetry, limericks, things like that. And, and that's just not something that tends to be, um, you know, it's not just a simplistic way of providing an answer to something. Um, it's, it's a more complex, more human way of engaging. And so in that way, people are quite fascinated by it. Now, I haven't had a chance to ask it these, these questions because every time I go on, it's at full capacity. So maybe if you're listening to this and you want to test it out for yourself, you might give this a go. So I wanted to see for myself if um, I could trick ChatGPT with a question that is quite simple, but um, complex enough that, you know, I... It, it would have to kind of know enough to be able to give the answer that I would expect it to. So I used the example of Britney Spears, you know, popular pop star and, um, you know, well-known, well-spoken of on the internet. I mean, very, very much spoken of on the internet. And so I wanted to ask ChatGPT, how old is Britney Spears' daughter? Now, that's a trick question because Britney Spears doesn't actually have a daughter. She has two sons. And I wanted to understand what its response would be to that question. I was able to ask Siri the same question. And Siri's response was uh, to offer me information about Britney Spears' sons. So Siri obviously cannot tell me that Britney Spears doesn't have daughters because Siri is not sophisticated enough to do that. Uh, but Siri can offer me an alternative answer, which doesn't necessarily challenge my premise, but simply gives me what information it knows. And then I tried a little bit of a more complex question when I said, uh, well, I asked Siri this. I said, what happened to Britney Spears' daughter? So that was me probing a little bit more. And I think that's also what I wanted to do with ChatGPT, to probe a little bit more and see again you know, how old is Britney Spears' daughter? The answer should be 
well, Britney Spears doesn't have a daughter. What happened to Britney Spears' daughter? Well, the answer should be, again, that Britney Spears doesn't have a daughter. But it's a different way of asking similar questions to see what um, ChatGPT would say. And when I asked this question to, to Siri, which was what happened to Britney Spears' daughter, uh, Siri then started to, I mean, Siri didn't give me the same answer as the first time, which was to show me Britney Spears' son's information. Rather, Siri then found information about Britney Spears', Britney Spears' sister's daughter and offered me that information and said, oh, um, Jamie Lynn Spears' daughter, etc., etc., etc. So the reframing of the question gave a different response, but still there was no picking up of the fact that Britney Spears does not have a daughter. So I wanted to try this on ChatGPT, but alas, I realized that I would not record this podcast if I kept waiting for ChatGPT to not be at capacity for me to ask. So those are some of the pros, I guess, that we start to see. Um, but there's cons. As I've said, there's two camps of thought. There's people who think this is a really great AI and there's people who think it's not. Um, one of the things, obviously, that's very big is around ethics. And um, the ethics of the Internet have always been at play and there have always been big questions around that. Um, one thing is, what if we asked non-ethical questions to chat GPT? You know, things that we are not um, that are not helpful to society to to ask and have answers to. But then, you know, that is one thing that shows up and comes up. But then that is also a thing that has always existed on the Internet itself. People have asked, well, you know, what if people Google um, very dangerous, uh, detrimental information and get answers to it on, on, on the Internet? Well, that information then is also there's a likelihood of that information existing within ChatGPT. I will say that um, because there has been all this work that has been done to mark and label content, it seems like uh, there has been a bit more sophistication for ChatGPT. But, you know, there's always ways to ask questions that elicit information that, um, you know, unless you have every permutation and combination of a question and can ask it in that way, there is always a loophole. There's always a way potentially to ask a question that tricks the AI and still gives you access to that information. Um, I think another big con that has been showing up lately is how people have been using ChatGPT to um, author essays and to cheat and tests and, and the like. Um, and so that's another thing that's starting to show up. I think ChatGPT itself has released um, some kind of word that they have now got some sort of system that helps people pick up um, when the information that they provided has been lifted from ChatGPT. Um, I know a, a student who must have <laughs> irritated a lot of his peers um, recently. I think he's a Stanford University student. He's developed a system as well that um, enables lecturers to pick up um, when content has been lifted from AI or something like that or from chat GPT. So I think as much as that is a risk, there are people who are also figuring out ways to mitigate against the risk. Um, we've already mentioned that hate speech is part of its training data. So that's another big thing that 
you know, we can't not, um, you know, we have to think about that because hate speech is prevalent and it's also changing. Now, hate speech also evolves. Um, and I think that's something that's um, very important to also think through is how as much as we may have these markers or chat GPT may have these ways of marking racist, sexist, um, hateful content, um, there are ways that hate speech evolves or the way that people shift hate speech language that an AI can't always keep up with. So an AI has, I suppose, a more literal way of picking up hate speech. But if you if you frame it in a different way, like if hate speech is put into poetry and the like, is AI intelligent enough to pick that up? Um, can it really pick the sentiment out of something that is a little bit more complex, a little less direct? Um, I think another big thing that we are starting to think through is how uh, ChatGPT can pose a big cybersecurity risk. Um, in the same way that it helps people to, to fix bad code, um, it can help people to write malware and to actually write bad code which can be very dangerous um, and so it's it's this thing of how well can it pick up that it's being used for malicious intent can it pick that up does it is its sentiment strong enough to pick that up um, I think another thing that's started to come up is about access. So OpenAI and ChatGPT are not accessible, or ChatGPT is not accessible in all countries. Um, one of those countries is Zimbabwe, and I've seen people on Twitter talking about how they cannot get into ChatGPT because it's restricted. And so those questions around what is, uh, you know, I, I suppose there is a diplomatic uh, foreign policy reason why um, it is not available in certain countries in the world but then how that also impacts access for people in those countries and how that impacts um, the knowledge base that this um, AI is then building from because it's it's restricting itself to largely developed countries, um, um, countries in the global north. And then, you know, what happens to information from countries of the global south or countries that have don't have um, as strong a diplomatic relationship with the US where chat GPT or open AI, the company is headquartered. And I think one other thing that I've picked up is, um, you know, people, some people feel it gives very diplomatic responses to more complex issues, particularly around geopolitics. Um, I did see a user, an Indian user asking um, chat GPT about things to do with the conflict, the ongoing conflict between India and Pakistan. And they felt like the answers were very tepid, were very um, uh, not representative of the situation on the ground. Now, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see what a person from Pakistan who asked the same questions um, about India would get as responses. Uh, but it seems almost like because it is trying not to get involved in any way in issues of a um, issues that tend to have a strong opinion or elicit a strong opinion, it tends to shy away from um, having any kind of sentiment in those in those issues, which may be a safety uh, a good safety mechanism, but then it also speaks to 
um, well, how how open is this this AI then? If it's if it's already got some kind of systems of knowing how to respond to things, I mean, then we can ask ourselves. But do not. But do human beings not also have the same mechanisms of diplomacy and of not really speaking their opinions? And so again, are we just uh, creating an artificial intelligence that mimics us as human beings? And if so, is that what we want or would we want a more open-minded, open-ended artificial intelligence that could um, challenge our human biases and our human diplomacy? Um, I think also one thing that has come up with is that has come up is the use of cheap African labor to make the AI safer um, in in starting to mark uh, content that is hateful and racist and sexist, etc. Um, more more um, diligently, um, OpenAI employed a company um, that is also headquartered in the US, but uses a lot of labor from different countries in the global south, including Kenya. And um, the people who were working on that were taking a, a, a wage of between $1.32 and $2 per hour um, for their work in um, creating a safer, safer mechanisms for the AI. So that also brings up these questions about how you know countries that may be excluded from participating in the actual growth and generation of content on these AIs are being used and sometimes even exploited in ways to make the AI safer for a largely Western audience. And so that also brings in these ethical issues around use and access. And, um, you know, again, I think one thing that I'd like to just end on is, you know, ownership. We talk a lot about um, the monopolistic patterns of social media companies, etc., and the digital space. And here's another example where we are finding that there is a strong link between one company, Twitter, and another one, ChatGPT, through ownership and consolidation from um, one person, Elon Musk. And so again, we are seeing this repetition of a pattern where uh, the concentration um Digital concentration and the power, digital power is concentrated into the hands of very few. And so it's almost like replicating a system or a model that has already uh, been deemed to be problematic. So how how do we see this going forward? You know, having an owner of two big platforms, how does one influence the other? How how does ChatGPT influence Twitter? How does Twitter influence ChatGPT, etc.? Anyway. That's my little roundup. It's not little, it's quite long. And uh, I hope um, I did that justice and I gave you some things to think through and think about. But yes, we are looking at ChatGPT and seeing where it will take us in the future. So here's to finding out more and learning more as we go. Um, and I thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. And I hope this has been food for thought for you. And I look forward to hearing if you have any feedback or any thoughts. I look forward to hearing what you might think on ChatGPT. Until the next time, do take care and I will see you on the other side.